Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk, everyone. Today, we're talking about one of my favorite subjects, and that is food. What do you eat? What don't you eat? What's good for you? What's bad for you? You know the story. And when you have kidney disease, it's a little bit difficult because your diet can change from, you know, before you're on dialysis and your CKD to when you're on dialysis to when you get a transplant. And um, today, we're very excited. We have Jessiana Seville. She's a renal dietitian, and she has a website called kidneygrub.com. So welcome to the show, Jessiana. Thanks. I'm excited to talk with you guys today. So, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about the, the renal diet, but maybe perhaps you can just break down the different stages of CKD versus dialysis versus transplant and why people need to follow different diets during those times. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question and probably one of the biggest, most confusing things to people when they're searching the Internet for information and they don't know what restrictions apply and don't. So um, when it comes to kidney disease, there's two things that are important with the diet. One is um, if before you're on dialysis, dialysis is delaying progression, which is why there are recommendations about um, cutting back on sodium and modifying your protein intake, looking at plant-based sources of protein. That is all about slowing progression of the kidney disease. Well, you know, it's interesting you said modifying their protein. And I think this is such an important question because we get calls from people saying, oh, I'm supposed to have no to little protein. And, you know, you, you can't you, you can't become malnourished um, while you're, you know, with CKD. So I like the fact that you said modify and not, you know, maybe you can restrict. explain a little bit. Restrict. Exactly. That this. It's horrible because people are afraid to eat protein, and then you can get an infection if your albumin's too low and you don't have anything to fight. So, Yeah, and you're exactly right. And, I mean, protein is a really important nutrient in our body, and even protein sources have some essential, um, some essential minerals and vitamins that we need, especially the minerals. So for most Americans, we eat a pretty high-protein diet. We really only need, like, 0.8 one gram per kilogram to just anybody. That's all we really need to sustain life and be healthy. Most Americans eat more like 1.5 gram per kilogram. So when people are working on slowing progression of their kidney disease, we really just want them to start eating less protein. And working with a dietitian is so helpful there because no protein is bad. If you're 150 pounds, how much protein should you have a day if you're in a CKD, you know, uh, mode of kidney disease? So if you're 150 pounds and you're looking at modifying your protein intake, you're aiming, and it depends a little bit also if you're diabetic. Diet, the research shows that people that are diabetic, um, there's not as much benefit for them in cutting back on protein quite as much. Um, but in generally, it would be Somewhere around, if you're tracking it, around 40 to 60 grams of protein um, for a 150-pound person. Um, if you're looking at that from, like, meat meat sources, 
um, it, that comes down to around two, maybe at the most three, three ounce portions. And three ounce is about the size of a deck of cards. So you're looking at two portions of meat that are about the size of a deck of cards. Okay. Um, and that's where you'd want to, to focus your efforts. One thing that's really helpful for people, um, is to do what we call less meat meals. Um, so a great example is something like stir fry where you can have one chicken breast and you cut it up into pieces and then you mix it with a lot of vegetables um, and you have a dish that is a chicken stir-fry, but it's not really a heavy meat dish, but you still have the satisfaction of right. having meat in it. And those are really helpful um, for people. And I have a handout on my website at Kidney Grub, and you type Kidney Grub, Less Meat Meals, and it pops up with probably like... 10 different ways you can do less meat meals, which is really helpful for people when they're cutting back. Now, uh, one of the other things, too, is is potassium, right? This is one of the things that people can get in trouble with if they aren't careful, if they have that problem when they're not on dialysis and also when they're on dialysis. So maybe explain a little bit about potassium. Yeah, so um, kind of going back to where I started with, so there's two big purposes with the the diet or changing your diet for renal disease. And the first one we talked about is slowing progression, salt, uh, controlling your blood sugar a little bit better, protein. The second thing is preventing complications. And that's where you'll see nutrient restrictions like potassium and phosphorus um, and even fluids come into play. And it's very different and it's important to understand because someone that's early stage kidney disease, maybe stage three, um, or if their labs are running really good, it's it would be more harmful for them to restrict potassium because potassium is great for blood pressure control than for someone that's later stage kidney failure. Um, when your kidneys stop working as well, you can't filter out the potassium, and that's why we have a potassium-controlled diet um, because if you get a very high level of potassium in your blood, you definitely can end up in the hospital um, for hyperkalemia. Yes, I had that happen to me. My heart stopped when I was 13 years old from a high potassium. It's it's not fun, and and it's really interesting because you just feel very heavy. Your muscles feel very, you know, you feel very tired, and I just wanted to lay flat on the floor. And this was back in the late 70s before they really knew a lot about kidney disease and how to, you know, the different options and it was actually I had gotten um anyways I won't go into that story but it's a very serious issue and it's um you know it's deadly if you if you don't manage it correctly yeah and I, I love that you brought that up because really the the potassium restriction is about just preventing that complication um so if you're late stage kidney disease and this is why again it's really helpful to have a dietitian on your team because she can look at your diet and she can pick out right away anything that might be a a potential problem or if there's a favorite food that's high in potassium she could pick that out and talk with you about how you manage that portion size I know for my clients I have um, I have a high and low potassium sheet we go over and if they are at a risk for hyperkalemia or for high potassium levels then generally the guideline is Eat most of your fruits and vegetables from that low potassium list. <laughs> lots and lots of great low potassium produce. So we have grapes and strawberries and apples, um, which are some common ones people know, and vegetables. We have 
salads that you can do and carrots and and there's a lot there's a lot of green really great beans <laughs> green beans yep yellow green squash leeks are like my new favorite food that I've been working with so there's so many great foods out there um but I'll tell them focus most of your diet on that low potassium if you're a potassium risk and then you have room in your diet for at least one high potassium food a day that you really love in a reasonable portion. So if your favorite thing in the world is a, a little plate of ham and beans this time of year, it's a, a really common comfort food, especially in the South where I'm at, um, then you have room for that in your diet as long as the most, the rest of your day is balanced out with some lower potassium food. Um, and that's where I really like to keep things at because I think with the renal diet, it's super important that people see all the foods they can have and also how they can work other foods in that they really love. Now, I have a transplant, and I'm very lucky because I can pretty much eat anything, and I'm actually... I need to eat salt to keep my blood pressure up because my kidney works so well. And it's it's a different, you know, for my whole life, don't watch, you know, don't don't eat salt, don't do this, don't do that. But I have a very fine line. If I eat just a little bit too much salt, I get a little bit more swelling. And so um, just because it's probably just so much salt in food nowadays that even though I need it for my blood pressure during the holidays or when you go to a party or something... Uh, maybe I'm eating, you know, 2,500 milligrams of salt, but you could get 4,000 milligrams of salt if you aren't, you know, careful at eating at, at a party or something like that. So I think when I just am a little bit over, then I can, um, you know, feel a little bit of swelling. But one of the things that's interesting is if you could talk a little bit about sodium and how it relates to your thirst and, and what you need to do in different stages of the illness pre ESRD, dialysis, and transplant? Yeah, I love that question. And I'm actually going to start on the dialysis end for this question. Um, I I have students that come into, uh, that work with me, and I have a mandatory article that they all read, and it was a, it's a white paper written by a doctor, and I'm forgetting who it was. but Dr. Belding Scrivener? <laughs> it could be. Yeah, it's a very, like, the title is very blatant. Like, you cannot talk about thirst if you do not talk about salt, mm-hmm. um, so, which is exactly right. Sometimes patients really get a lot of, um, there's a lot of discussion from uh, the staff members about how much they're drinking when really the issue is how much salt they're eating. Right. And I think the best example to know how it impacts you is to think about if you're making Kool-Aid. So if you make Kool-Aid and you put too much sugar in it, what do you have to add to make so it's not so sweet? That would be water. Water. You add extra water. So our body, when we have a lot of sodium, especially floating through our blood, in order to get homeostasis, it wants to add more water and more volume to our body to reduce that amount of saltiness so it can get back into a a homeostasis. And that is why people will have an insatiable thirst if they are drinking or if they are eating a lot of salt. Um, And so one of the easiest ways to manage your thirst is to be conscious of your salt because that 
like this insatiable desire for water is physiological. It's not about self-control. It's not about anything else, lack of management. Like your body is sending some very strong signals to your brain for you to drink if you have a salty diet. So making it easier on yourself is just cutting back on the salt and then you don't have your brain telling you, yelling at you that you have to drink more water and having that strong urge. It's really hard for people to fight well, that. I know. It's impossible. Actually, it's impossible. Yeah, it is. It, it is. And people get so harped on how much you're drinking and, you know, and, and it's really about the salt. Um, that's one of the bottom line issues. So for dialysis patients, probably that's... the easiest thing to manage your thirst is starting to figure out where you're getting sodium from. Dr. Belding Scribner was the grandfather of dialysis. He is just an amazing man, and I, I had an opportunity to spend some time with him. And he said that it takes 21 days to lose the taste of sodium. So if you start to minimize your sodium, and then after 21 days, you won't really want it anymore. And I know this is true when if anybody's ever been sick for a couple of weeks and then you start eating and you're like, oh, my God, that's so salty. And it's because you've you your body, like you said, has lowered its sodium amount. Um, one other example I like to give is about sodium, because I think this is such an important topic, is um, in the mid 90s, I was a medical sales specialist. And I sold a product that helped, it's called the Crit Line, that it measures blood volume and it, it helps you pull fluid off during dialysis and you can see into the intravascular structure. So one of the things that was interesting is one of my clients was a animal hospital up in Sacramento and they had doggy dialysis up at, at uh at UC Davis, they had a, you know, at a sophisticated animal. And it was a little bit difficult to go into a, a companion animal hemodialysis unit facility because I'm a big animal lover and it was hard to see the dogs on dialysis. But what was really interesting is the dogs didn't have much fluid gain at all. And, you know, the reason is, is that they could totally control the diet for the dogs and how much sodium and dogs aren't social drinkers like we are. That we don't go they don't go out for a cup of coffee. And right, and true. so so dogs did really well on dialysis. They didn't have any crashing or cramping or anything like that, which made it much easier for me to, you know, be working there because I was just, just so traumatized because I'm such an animal lover. But I thought that was an interesting fact. And it comes down to managing how much sodium you take. It, that's huge, and I'm so glad you brought that up because it's probably one of the big top 10 dialysis myths out there is that you should drink less to control your fluids, which you should, but it's not that simple. It is not. Um, yeah, and yeah, that, that's a perfect example, and that's what you'll see. People that have no problem controlling their fluids, it's usually because they're eating a little bit of a fresher, lower-sodium diet. Um, so that makes a big difference. And for earlier stages... Um, I know that was a part of your question as well. It really, it, it's just really, really dependent on the person. I mean, sodium control is important for everyone with kidney disease. Um, but so, for people that are later stage, not on dialysis, some of it depends on the medications you're on. Um, it depends if how much you're urinating still. Like there's so many factors and so how much fluid you should take in or how you should manage that is something 
that has to be discussed with your medical team. But for people that are early on, uh, maybe stage three, maybe early stage four, um, they have a lot of flexibility with their fluids and the goal still, regardless of your fluid status or swelling or whatever, it comes down to um still still working on the sodium and managing the salt. Well, and when you're, you know, CKD stage three, four, or under, you look at the color of your urine. I mean, you need to drink enough to make sure your your urine is like a pale yellow, you know, because it's like, you know, I hear people like, I don't want to, I'm like, no, you, you your kidneys need to work. I mean, they're still working, so you can, it's not going to help them by not drinking if you still have kidney function. So Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things that you go back to that, are we, what is the re- reason for that restriction? Are we slowing progression or are we preventing complications? And with fluid, it doesn't slow progression to have to drink water. So drinking water doesn't harm your kidneys. For later stages, maybe you need a fluid restriction so you don't have a complication of fluid overload. But early on, that's not a complication you have to worry about if you're urinating. Well, one of the things that I like to do, too, is I always ask for my printout of my labs because your sodium will be there, your potassium will be there, and you can talk to your doctor about, you know, what level he wants you at and then put them in a folder. So it's interesting to, you know, you may have CKD for a couple of years, and then you can go back and review what were your labs three years ago. And and see how they've changed if 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 somebody's willing to be that organized. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think it makes a big difference. And I love when uh, clients come into me and they say, "Well, this is this is what my GFR was two years ago, and I noticed it's starting declining. I want to really like jump jump on this right away and stabilize it. What can we do with diet?" And watching those trends is really critical. Um, for kidney disease and being organized that way is fantastic because no one is a better advocate for yourself than yourself when it comes to the medical world. You know, can you talk a little bit about phosphorus because it is the comfort food demon. <laughs> that's all I can say. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. So um, phosphorus is important for everyone with kidney disease. When you're early stage kidney disease, and when I say that, I mean stage four or before, maybe even like stage five before dialysis, on your blood work, it will not show up as being elevated very much unless you're drinking a lot of something high phosphorus like Coke or Pepsi. Um, however, all the research is showing that even at stage three, when your labs look totally normal, phosphorus is having an impact on you. And I'm going to talk some specifics in just a second. For people on dialysis, phosphorus is a big deal, and it's really a big deal for everyone. And the reason why is because it causes calcification in your body and weak bones. So when you have too much phosphorus floating around in your blood, it wants calcium. Like calcium is its best friend. And the best place to get calcium is from your bones. So it sucks it out, right, like a vacuum. That's right. Because it's like a magnet. It's got to equal itself out, right? It's got to, like, I need equal amount of me in the bloodstream. That's right. They are best friends. And so phosphorus and calcium, they get together in the blood, and they're they're holding hands. They're dancing around. They're so happy to be together. <laughs> they get tired. And then they lay down in soft tissues. Soft tissues are like our heart and our blood vessels. 
Those and little rat bastards. <laughs> Sorry. I know. Yeah, and that's exactly what I think about them. Um, I call it pesky phosphorus. Is actually what <laughs> I, I shouldn't have said that, me. but it just seemed appropriate. <laughs> oh, it totally is appropriate. <laughs> I guess that's how I feel about it. I feel about it. Um, but yeah, so when you get that calcification, that you get a, a really strong risk for um, heart disease, stroke. Uh, those are some complications that come from that calcification from phosphorus. So for people that are early stage kidney disease, the big thing that I tell them to watch out for, um, and it, if you're just aware of it, it's not such a huge dietary change. For early stage, it's just starting to look for phosphate additives in your food. You're just looking for P-H-O-S, phos, in the ingredients on your foods. Um, things like that you might consider healthy, like chicken in the store. Some chicken has added phosphates. Um, and just switching to a different brand takes that away. Some other things like Coke and Pepsi, it's used as a flavoring. Um, and so you're not going to find a cola drink without phosphorus very frequently, if at all. I haven't found one yet. Well, even tea has it now. Like, it's a preservative. Like, you think tea used to be okay in the bottle, and now they just put phosphorus in it because it's it helps it stay better longer. Oh, it's it's everywhere. And on our um, on kidney grub, dietitians all over the U.S. Canada have been helping with this. They've started taking pictures of products they find in the grocery store with phosphorus or without phosphorus too that can kind of substitute each other. And then we load them up on the website so people can scan and get familiar with. Oh, what does phosphorus look like in our foods? And we call those inorganic phosphates or chemical phosphates. Our body absorbs them a hundred percent. Our body just like loves them. They're so easily absorbed. So for people with early stage, watching out for those is the key. Can you talk a little bit about when you're supposed to take that phosphate binder? Because if you're going to eat phosphorus, do you take it, you know, an hour before, 30 minutes? Does it work if you take it five hours after you eat? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, the phosphate binder um, is very important. It's a medication that is absolutely fantastic. So everyone has different phosphate binder that they use. And a phosphate binder is uh, basically it's like a magnet for phosphorus. So the phosphate binder is the binder is now the phosphorus's best friend by sitting in the gut and waiting for that food to drop down. And it's going to say, you're not going to go find calcium. You're going to stay with me. Yes, I love that example. That's exactly how it works. And that's why it's important, as, as you alluded to at the beginning, is that you take it with your meals. And each binder is a little bit different. Some of them, uh, they say you take it at the beginning of your meal. Some say that you take it at the end of your meal. Really, the critical thing is that you take it with your food. If it's if you forgot your binder and now it's three hours later, um, the food has started to be, the phosphorus has already started to be absorbed into your bloodstream, and so it's not going to be as effective. Um, so generally, our guideline is about within 30 minutes of your meal is when you're going to have more of an impact with that phosphate binder. And it it really is as pesky as phosphorus because you have to take it with every meal, and it's so helpful. So it's a new habit that people have to get into. Um and there's lots of ways to make it work for you. And lots of people find ways to make the binders work for them. Um, I, I've always found that the key is getting the right binder for you. So some people really like a powder binder. They can mix in a liquid and they can, you know, drink a little bit of that liquid when they, when they need to take their binders. Other people love a pill form. 
Other people like chewable tablets, but finding one that works for you is the key in taking them. And they are crucial because your kidneys just don't filter out the phosphorus. So you need that to grab that phosphorus so you don't absorb it. Well, I think we could probably talk for hours, and we want to we want to keep this show at a, a relatively um, bite size <laughs> joke um, a, a amount of time. Can we talk a little bit about you know the holidays, different holidays? You know, uh, one of my uh, one of the questions we get a lot is alcohol and um, wine, beer, spirits. Uh, what do you have to worry about when you have kidney disease with those? That's, yeah, that's a good question. Um, and alcohol is such a social and important part of the holidays for so many people. Um, the first thing, of course, is always to check with your doctor to make sure you don't have a medication that's going to interact with that. Um, generally, it's fine. A lot of people like to enjoy maybe a glass of white wine or red wine, and they're okay with that on on the holidays. Um, even some of the, the hard liquors, if you're having a mixed drink, but you do need to check with your doctor and make sure you don't have a, a medication that's going to interact with that. Um, and then if you're diabetic, which many people with kidney disease are, um, of course you wouldn't want to be drinking on an empty stomach because that can drop your blood sugar very, very dangerously. Um, so that would be the other consideration. And generally we discourage uh, beer, especially because it has a lot of phosphates. But like everything, and especially during the holidays, there is room for moderation. Yes, I know. Isn't it? Beer is made from hops, which is like a, a grain, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and grain yeah. is high in phosphorus, where wine is just a few grapes and stuff. So you think of the origin of what the alcohol came from. So it's, uh, yeah, I know. I remember a friend of mine was, phosphorus was high, and they were drinking a, a, a bottle of beer every day. <laughs> and then that'll do it, right? Yep. yep. Um, so, uh, and the other thing I want to talk about is when you're um, going to a party, and w- this could be a whole other topic, is if you're going to a party to ask the host if you could bring something. Because I've been to parties where they don't have anything that I could eat that was good for me. And sometimes it's really interesting because if you engage the host who is having the party, they may actually learn a little bit about kidney disease and different things and prepare something. So it becomes an educational moment. So I don't know if you have any advice about, you know, dishes for parties or uh, some way to deal with that type of social interaction that can sometimes be very negative and heart-wrenching when you go to a party and there's nothing you can eat oh absolutely food food is not just nourishment it's such a part of our souls <laughs> so um i love that suggestion and that's what i'd recommend too if you're going to a party and you're not sure and if you're open especially about um kidney disease and that you have that and you're dealing with some dietary restrictions then offering to bring a nice dish is, is wonderful um i'm actually going to post tonight a uh, some tips on a nice green salad. Every party I've ever been to at the holidays, one of the big foods that gets eaten, because people really love fresh food, is like a fancy holiday salad. And there's so much that you can put into it that's delicious and excellent. Um, or even if you know they're going to have um, some sort of a dip of some sort, bring in your own, like low-sodium crackers can be great. Or make your own dip. Uh, 
and then knowing kind of the things that you definitely can have. So if they have a cranberry sauce, you can do that. If they have some sort of a berry pie or an apple pie or something that's like a berry or an apple basis, you can have that. So no, knowing those things that you can have is is an excellent way to go um, because otherwise it can be really hard to kind of pick through the foods and and feel bad because you don't want to offend them if you're not eating them, but you also don't want to feel sick later. And um, so bring in something that you can really bulk your plate up with, like a salad is a great way to go. Well, and one of the things I used to bring is a jello salad. I know it's fluid, but you could put apples and there's all kinds of different ways, but it can be festive for any. You can make it, you know, for, for Christmas, for Easter, for Valentine's Day. There is some extra fluid, but it, it's it's refreshing. You can put fruit in it. You can put marshmallows in it. Uh, yeah, and it's fancy, and people love it. That's a good suggestion. And, yeah, I love that. And then I would also do, like, celery with different, cut it and put little, uh, a low-sodium type of dip inside of it, like to have little bite size. You know, th- that's a whole other topic, too, but... um. I just want to express during any holiday or any birthday party is it's a really an opportunity to help educate people on kidney disease. And, and, you know, you may be saving their life because, you know, one in 10 people are at risk. So unless you go to a very small party, there's somebody there who could be at risk and it would be beneficial for them to know about it. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Kidney disease is... One of the biggest health concerns that no one talks about it, but it impacts so many people. Well, uh, Jessiana, um, I think we could probably talk for hours, but I think we're going to have to invite you back on Kidney Talk. Uh, I, um, I, your your website, kidneygrub.com, is a, a great um, resource for people who have kidney disease. And it's so wonderful that a, a renal dietitian has taken the time to really help educate people across the country, not only, you know, her, her patients in her clinics. So um, any closing statements that you would like to make before we wrap up? Uh, yeah, actually, this one thing that I'd love to say um, is that I really believe in the power of focusing on what you can have, um, especially during any holiday season that there's a lot of power and positivity and just knowing what you can have and that there's so many wonderful foods out there. And when you see everything you can have, um, it really makes the renal diet a lot more livable and definitely more lovable for anyone. Um, so th- and that's one of the messages of kidney grub is that we're just trying to find livable, lovable, can have solutions for people so they don't have to focus so much on restrictions. No, it's so true. And we're so lucky to be able to have access to have food. I mean, I always think of people who, you know, they don't, in other countries, they don't get much choice. They're just happy to have something to eat. And sometimes I would have to put my mindset when I was feeling sorry for myself because I didn't, you know, I couldn't eat, I couldn't have a cheese pizza because I really wanted some cheese pizza, but it was too much guilt attached with eating it when I was on dialysis. And then I would just try to think, wait a second, Lori, look at all the other choices you have. And there are people who, you know, they're lucky if they have any choice of food. And so um, to just try to put myself in that mindset. So, well, thank you very much. Um, We really appreciate all this information. And I look forward to talking to you in a future show. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been, been my pleasure. 
Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.